Okay, so tonight we are ending our series uh, called On the Road. And if you have been here, uh, you know what kind of this is about. But if you haven't, uh, so we're in the series In the Life of Jesus. And specifically, we are in a time, uh, time frame in the life of Jesus where Jesus is headed towards Jerusalem to take his throne over the nations. But before that, he has to pass through the cross and pass through the grave to get there. And we've been, uh, we've been looking at Jesus' teachings on the road that we look to to shape our lives, to form our lives, to be disciples of Jesus as we follow him uh, to the cross and to resurrection. Uh, and I had a sermon prepped for you guys, or I was getting ready to prep it, and then I went and did my morning Wednesday ritual of like I open up the passage and I just read for hours. And I looked at my passage, and it was not what I thought it was. So literally after three hours of reading commentaries, what I thought it was talking about and what I was going to say to you was not what the passage was going to say. And I was like, I literally don't have a sermon next week. So I went to bed Wednesday kind of in a half panic, you know, like not full panic, but halfway there. And I woke up Thursday, and I just felt God brought this story, uh, the story of two disciples on the road to Emmaus to my mind. And I felt like God was saying, I want you to teach that passage. Uh, and I know when that happens for me, God disrupts my plans. I know it's not because he just wants me to teach something else, but it's because he has something very special for you. And I'm really excited about that tonight. And so before I kind of like launch into the sermon, here's what I'll say. This whole series, we've been talking about like following Jesus, pursuing Jesus, learning him, applying his teachings, obeying. And if you just kind of get in that momentum, sometimes following Jesus is just exhausting. It's really hard. I feel that in my life, it's just like, it's a, it, sometimes it just feels like a grind to follow Jesus. And what I love about this story is we've been tracking with the disciples of Jesus following Jesus to the cross, but this is going to be a story where Jesus actually chases and follows his disciples to reveal his presence to them who are discouraged. So I pray it's a blessing for you tonight. But with that being said, let's pray and let's jump in. Lord, we are so grateful that you pursue us. God, we are so thankful uh, that it's out of your love and kindness that you pursue us. You don't pursue us out of anger, uh, but you pursue us out of love. And so, God, I pray that you would open up our hearts to the movement of your spirit tonight, to the voice of Jesus. God, I pray that there would be a responsiveness to your word. Um, God, if there is anybody listening right now that thinks they're hearing something from Corey, God, I pray that you would change that mindset that they're hearing Jesus through Corey, and specifically through your word tonight. So Jesus, we are here. Our ears are open. Our hearts are open. Would you speak to us? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I want to start tonight with a question. What do you do when you're disillusioned and you can't see Jesus? Uh, when I, I've been in young adults for, I've been in this ministry, this, actually this may will be 10 years. And one of, the, one of the things that I have seen in young adults is like disillusionment. It's like, it's not when it happens, but it's, it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. Uh, this particular generation uh, has all sorts of disillusionment with the church, things in their, purple, like in their personal lives. And there's just something about being young in your 20s, maybe even early 30s, where like you expected God to do something in your life or you expected your life to learn to like be a certain way and then you get to that age or whatever, you know, we all make up a number. By this age, I want, you know, and, and like it just doesn't happen. And it's, uh, it's disorienting, it's discouraging. Um, in my experience, disillusionment, disillusionment comes when God doesn't meet our expectations. 
We have these expectations. We don't even know they're there, but they are there, and God doesn't meet them. Typically, people who are struggling with disillusionment or they can't see Jesus, uh, the phrase of like, I didn't see this happening. I didn't see this going this way. Some of you, that's uh, maybe an experience you had at a church that's made you disillusioned with Jesus, or maybe other Christians. Uh, For some of you, maybe it's a relationship, like you thought God was leading you, and then all of a sudden it's gone in a moment. There's like an unsettledness there. And then sometimes in that like kind of discouragement or even suffering, if you want to use that word, like it seems like there's a veil between you and God. Is that not true? Some of you are experiencing this in your health. Like you just, you did not expect your health to be in the place that it was at this point, And that's what happened. Some of you, you're disillusioned because of yourself. You thought you were somebody else. And all of a sudden life comes and you, you, that one little compromise led to another one and a bigger one and a bigger one. And you're like, how did I even get here? Here's the thing that I know tonight. At some level, everybody in the room tonight is struggling to see Jesus. To see Jesus in his beauty. To see Jesus as trustworthy. And why I'm excited about this topic tonight is because tonight's message and specifically tonight's story is a message to speak to you who are struggling with that in your own life. Uh, Like I said, we are looking at a story of two disciples of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And so your road to Emmaus might be your road of disillusionment or discouragement or despair or you just can't see Jesus. Uh, And here's the thing. Here's one thing I want you to know before we jump in about disillusionment. Disillusionment will always have you walking away from where Christ is. Disillusionment, when it's left unchecked, will always have you walking away from where Christ actually is. So with that being said, let's, let's jump into the story. So Luke 24, uh, let me just give you some context. So Jesus, we've been talking about Jesus going up to Jerusalem. So now Jesus went to Jer- Jerusalem. He was betrayed by his own people. He was handed over to the Roman government. Uh, he was crucified and flogged and killed and murdered like a criminal on the cross. Uh, they buried him, and then three days later on Sunday morning, he rises again. And, uh, and that's where this story picks up. So in the morning, uh, so like some women go to the tomb, they see Jesus, Peter goes there, and then there's this like, this story that we're talking about tonight is only in the book of Luke. This is the only place it's found in the Bible, and it's a beautiful story, and you'll see why here in a second. So let's start in verse 13. The verses will be on the screen. So this is now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Uh, They were talking with each other about everything that had just happened. That's referring to Jesus' death and everything that just happened there. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. All right, a couple things I want you to notice in the story. There's two uh, disciples. We actually don't know who these two disciples are. Uh, except that one of them, their, their name is actually given in verse 18. We'll see that in a second. And the name is Cleopas. And, uh, and so some, you know, so there's been all sorts of like scholars and, you know, smart people trying to figure out like who these two disciples are. We ultimately don't know. But if I were had to guess, and the best guess is there was a couple uh, at the foot of Jesus' cross that's actually named that like the Greek, it's like the same name as this. So look at this. In John 19.25, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother Sisti, 
We're just going to move on. I'm not even going to acknowledge that. Um, his mother's sister, and then uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas. So Cleopas and Clopas, here's the thing in the biblical times. They sometimes just spell their name differently at different times. It's like, I didn't know you could do that. It's like, I'm C-O-R-Y today, and tomorrow I'm C-O-R-E-Y, but that's what it is. So most likely, uh, and for the rest of this story, I'm actually, I actually really do believe it's this couple. They were at the foot of the cross. They saw Jesus crucified. It was a husband and a wife, which I think there's just something really beautiful and special about that. But it's Mary and Clopas, and that's who I think it is. Second thing, they're, they're, they're traveling to a village called Emmaus. Now, here's what's interesting. We actually don't, we have no idea where that village is. We, like, there's, we have no idea. Uh, but what we do know, according from the scriptures, is it's about seven miles from Jerusalem, which is about a two-hour walk. So they're on a two-hour walk away from Jerusalem, and they're headed towards Emmaus. Uh, and as they're walking, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, but this couple does not believe it yet. They've heard rumors, as we'll see in a second, but they do not believe it yet. And they're, guys, put yourself in these shoes. These are, it's a married couple. They were disciples of Jesus. They heard his teachings. They were friends with him. And they saw, guys, just put yourself they saw one of their best friends and their teachers crucified. And they were like, like he was the one that was supposed to liberate them from oppression. They put all their, like, have you ever put all your eggs in a basket and then it proves to be false? That feeling of just like, I'm discouraged. Like, like that's the state that they're in. So they're, they're, they're walking and they're headed to Emmaus, away from Jerusalem. They're at an all-time low. And it says that they're processing, they're debating, they're lamenting. They're trying to make sense of what just happened, like many of us would when something huge happens. But here's what's interesting. So they're walking down the road to Emmaus. Then a stranger rolls up on them. So just think about this. They're talking to themselves. I think I just picture my wife and I walking down the road processing something hard and this stranger rolls up and it says that they're kept from recognizing him. So we know in the scripture it's Jesus, but they didn't know it was Jesus yet. And what I love about this is like the passage says that they were kept from recognizing him. Now some people go like, well, how did they not, like if it's Jesus, couldn't they just be like, hey Jesus, you know, glad you're here. But there's something about the word kept that makes it seem like God is actually keeping them from recognizing Jesus at this moment. Does that make sense? And it's supposed to be um, this physical picture of them not being able to recognize Jesus. This is how beautiful Luke is. He's trying to give you a picture of a spiritual reality. They physically can't see Jesus, but they actually don't have the spiritual eyes to really see him yet. Does that make sense? Okay, let's, let's move on with the story. It gets good. Verse 17. So he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Just think about how nosy, like, if you, like it's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? It's like, what do you do? Like, no, like you can't do that. You know, so they asked him, what are you discussing together as you walk along? So they stood still. So like their faces downcast, they're looking to the ground because they're so filled with sorrow. And then one of them, there it is, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's like, were you not there when that like Jesus man was crucified? It's like everybody knew about it. Like it went viral. There was no TikTok, but it was going viral around the city. And then I love Jesus. What things? He's like, it seems like he's playing dumb a little bit. He asked and, and, then, and then he goes on. He goes, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we, this is a key phrase, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, 
It is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our own women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us what they had seen, a vision of angels who said he was alive, but they're kind of skeptical. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. And here's a a key phrase. But they did not see Jesus. Uh, So a whole lot is going on here. I want you guys to note a couple of things. Uh, Notice that they called Jesus a prophet and not the Messiah. Jesus this whole time was uh, like he was to his disciples. He revealed himself to be the Messiah, which means he is the anointed king stamped by God to redeem Israel, to free them from oppression, but also to renew the world. And they were hoping that that, and then you ever like thought somebody was something and then they turn out they weren't and you're kind of like embarrassed of them. Uh, I think there's a sense of that going on. Like they can't even mutter like, he was the Messiah and they crucified him. Like, they're like he was just a prophet. Uh, so there's, there's that. Uh, second, I want you to notice the irony of, this, of these verses. It's extremely profound. Uh, in verses 17 and 19, it's like Jesus is like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you serious? Like, how do you not know? And then Jesus is like, well, what things? Here's what's interesting about this. Jesus seems to be the one who's out of touch with reality, but it's actually the couple. And then specifically in verse 24, that phrase, it says, the women at the tomb did not see Jesus. So like those women at the tomb, they did not see Jesus. And Luke in this writing, it's ironic because they're looking at Jesus and they're not seeing Jesus. Do you see what's happening here? There's the blinders are on, they're seeing him, they're actually physically seeing him, but they don't have the spiritual eyes to see. Uh, uh, Note three, I I said this already, but I want you to, to note the couple's despair and disillusionment. Verse 17 says, they stood still and their faces were downcast. They're standing there and then that phrase, we hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And I just want to pause here for a moment because I think this scene, it's beautiful. Luke is doing so many artistic, beautiful, poetic things. It's absolutely amazing. But there's something about this moment right now that just reveals the heart of Jesus that has just warmed my heart this week. This couple is disillusioned, they're in despair, they're in disdain, they're struggling, they can't even lift their eyes. And maybe you feel like you're in a place like that. You're traveling down your Emmaus Road, and whatever I said at the beginning of this message, where you just are, you're processing things, things aren't the, the same that you thought they would be. Maybe God wasn't the person that you thought he would be, or he didn't come through the way that you thought. Maybe like this couple, your expectations have been dashed, Maybe your hopes have been disappointed. And here's what I want you to see in Jesus. When Jesus is saying like, hey, what's going on? What things? He's not playing dumb. He's meeting them in their pain. He's not playing dumb. He's not just trying to like play along and be playful and like, I'm going to show myself to you later. He's, he's, not, being, he's not playing dumb. He's meeting them in their pain. Uh, there's a quote from a commentary I want you guys to see from this. It's absolutely beautiful. How loving it was for Jesus, having journeyed from Galilee and entered Jerusalem as king, to travel back with two of his disciples down the road of their disillusionment, and then to listen to all of their doubts. And I love this. Jesus will show the same kindness to us. He will overtake us along life's road, falling in stride with our sorrow and our confusion. And I love this. Then he will ask, what we know about him, hoping that we will listen to the gospel and see 
him as our Savior. All right, I want to I stop. I, I want you to notice a couple of things that are really profound about this that reveal the heart of Jesus. I love this particular moment in the story because it shows this. Jesus actually had the time for this couple. Think about what just happened. Jesus was just, it's the same day that Jesus was raised from the dead. He could have been like showing up to the 12. He like, you know, like he probably could have like done his like little parade or march. Like, hey guys, I'm like, I'm actually back from the dead. There are so many other places that Jesus could have been and actually probably should have been. But he sees two of his disciples that he deeply loves and he goes out of his way to spend most of the day with them. Jesus could have been doing anything. And Jesus goes, I'm going to go find the one who is struggling. And I'm going to personally reveal myself to them. I think the second thing that I just love is that Jesus asked questions and listened. Uh, did you notice, like, uh, how many of you, like, when you're processing something really painful, somebody tries to give a quick fix? They're like, somebody like, pours out their heart, and they're like, here's the thing that you should do. And it's like a Christian cliche. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to smack you in the face right now. But you know this, the, the worse pain that you're in, the more you need somebody to listen. So I don't think Jesus is playing dumb, like he's just trying to get them to talk. I think Jesus knew they needed to talk. So he goes, what happened? Tell me about it. He's not in a rush to go, hey, it's me, don't worry about it, stop crying, it's okay. He meets them and he starts drawing out what's already in them because he wants to listen to them. And I just want to, I want to stop real quick. I talk to all sorts of young adults about their life with God, about prayer. And one of the things that I get all the time about prayer, and I've felt it too, and I do feel it too, is like, why do I have to pray if God already knows how I feel? If he already knows what's in me. And what I love about this story, it's because Jesus loves you. Jesus wants a relationship with you. Jesus actually wants to hear the thing. He doesn't just like want to see it and then try to fix it. He wants to hear. He wants to hear how it's affecting you. He wants to hear how it's breaking your heart. He wants to hear how the doubts are rising. He wants to hear, he wants to hear you. I love that Jesus listens. Uh, and I love that, thirdly, he nourished the couple with himself. He doesn't offer anything else other than himself, and we'll get to that in a second. Let's carry on with the story. Look at verse 25. So it ends with, but they did not see Jesus, who is standing right in front of them, and then it takes a little bit of a turn, and you get, like, spicy Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, he just called him a prophet, and here he goes, Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, and he's not just referring to like the man of Moses, but he's referring to the first five books of your Bible who is attributed to Moses' writing. So it says, from the beginning of the Bible through the rest of the Bible <laughs> and all the prophets, that's what he's saying there. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures, I love this, concerning himself. So let's just start. Jesus calls them foolish. Could you imagine being called foolish by Jesus? Like, it's like, eh, you know, not my best day. <laughs> but here's what I want to see. Jesus isn't being unkind. He's being accurate. And he's not, uh, I think when sometimes you see this, you're like, well, Jesus, how did they know? Jesus wasn't, he wasn't calling them dumb. He's like, hey, you're, how foolish of you. You're so dumb. Don't you know the scriptures talk about this? He, he's not calling them dumb. Uh, notice, this isn't an intelligence problem. This is a heart problem. 
This is key. Jesus isn't calling them foolish because they have an intelligence problem. He's calling them foolish because they have a heart problem. The passage says, how slow to believe, not how, how come you're not smart enough. Do you see what's going on there? All right, here, and here's, here's why he calls them slow to believe. The couple was still at this point resistant to Jesus' word. And I'm not talking about the scriptures even at this point. All the while, in Jesus' ministry the whole time, multiple times on the way to Jerusalem. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Got it? Got it. Hey, just so you know, they're going to crucify me. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. Got it? Got it. He does it three times on this whole journey. And then it actually happens, and they're like, see? And Jesus is going, how foolish. I, I told you. It's not that you didn't know. I told you. You just didn't have room in your theology for what I was telling you. You didn't have room in your belief system about how I was supposed to operate and how I was supposed to save people and how I was supposed to take the throne that you wouldn't listen to me. Does that resonate at all? Jesus, you're supposed to be doing it this way, in this way. And Jesus goes, I don't work that way. I've already told you. And I love this. Specifically, the disciples, they didn't have a theology of a suffering Messiah that would then rise. They're like, you're just going to conquer Rome, kick everybody's butt, and then you're just going to like raise our arms up in victory. And Jesus goes, that's not how it worked. And here's the key. The people of Israel didn't understand that Israel wasn't going to be saved from suffering. They were going to be saved through suffering. And specifically through the suffering of Jesus. So Jesus gives them a Bible study. Listen, if there is one scene in the Bible where I was like, I would pay so much money to be in this moment where Jesus is like, hey, open up your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1, I have a lesson for you. I was like, I would feel terrible about every sermon that I taught after that. But Jesus is literally, Jesus himself is giving his disciples a Bible study. He goes, I want to show you from your scriptures and from the Old Testament, the Old Testament that is in your laps right now, how the Messiah, how I must suffer and then rise again. All right, track with me in this quote. This is, this is, this is really important and really good. So, Uh, Philip Craig Reichen wrote a commentary, and this is what he says. What do the scriptures say about the sufferings of Christ? He says, if we turn to Genesis, remember Jesus started with Moses. I wonder if these were some of the things that Jesus was teaching these disciples. He says, if we turn to Genesis, the scripture says that the seed of the woman, a man of flesh and blood, will be bruised by the devil before crushing the devil's head. If we turn to Exodus, the scripture says that the people of God are delivered from death through the offering of a Passover lamb. Exodus. If we turn to Leviticus, the scripture says that the atonement can be made only through the offering of sacrificial blood. If we turn to Numbers, the scripture lifts up the sign of the bronze serpent and everyone who sees it is delivered from death. If we turn to Deuteronomy, we discover that the cursed covenant-breaking sinners may find grace at the blood of the sprinkled altar of God. Then he goes on, Jesus is not just here or there in this prediction or that prophecy. He is everywhere in the Old Testament. He is the Ark of the Covenant and the blood on the mercy seat. He is the light on the golden lampstand and he is the bread of life. He is the prophet who preaches like Moses. He is the priest who prays like Aaron and he's the king after David's heart. We follow his method of interpretation when we see Jesus in the redemption of Ruth by Boaz, the sacrifice of Samson, the kingships of Josiah, the miracles of Elijah, and all the other types and signs and figures of the Old Testament. Here's the thing. Jesus seemed to think that something would come to life when he was understood from the Old Testament. 
And what Jesus seemed to think is that he would come to life when he was understood from the Old Testament. Now, I want to pause here because this is, I think, a pastoral moment that I want to address. First of all, my guess is half of you, if not more, read all those things like, I don't even know what that is talking about. Mercy seat, bread, you know what I'm saying? Especially if you like, weren't raised in a Christian household. Uh, you get intro to Jesus and you're like, you know, you're like, why is the Bible like 80% this big? And it's like, Jesus, like, what the heck is all? Like, it's so, it's so confusing, is it not? Uh, I, I like to think about it this way. I, when I talk to young adults often, one of the things that I hear really often is like, I, I don't want to read the Old Testament. At best, it's like I struggle to read it, so I'm just not going to engage. At worst, it's like, it's so confusing, I'm just not going to, I'm just not going to try to figure it out. I'm not going to seek help. I'm just going to spend time in the last three quarters of the Bible and do that. I want to give you guys an illustration to maybe unpack this a little bit more. So uh, I have an incredible wife named Crystal, which I wish could be here tonight, but she's working uh, at the Orange Theory. So, uh, but here's one of the things that I remember when I started to get to know Crystal. Um, I like Crystal has a story to her. Uh, if you got to know Crystal, you start to realize that she was born in Colorado Springs. Uh, you start to realize that she was raised Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, so if you don't know anything about that, you can Google it later. I won't explain it now. But she was raised in uh, that particular denomination, which had a legalistic kind of way of operating uh, in things, uh, which kind of deeply affected her spiritual life. And then she would probably tell you in junior high, she went to this church that started preaching grace. And she's like, that's the first time I actually, I remember like being at youth group and I was like leaning in. She's like, I was in high school and I'd go to youth group and just like, I was like, what is this grace thing they're talking about? Jesus was coming alive for her. You'd also learn that she's a middle child. Any middle childs in here? You're like, yes, another one. And that's deeply, like, that's affected how she thinks about the world, how she experienced all sorts of different things. You would, you would learn at some point, I came into the picture in college, just as the standout amongst all GCU. Yes, here's, here, here's the point. I know Crystal in two ways. By my life in the present with her and through her story. Now, I want, I want you to imagine me sitting down with Crystal for the first time, and I was like, hey, can you just skip over all that stuff and just tell me the good, like, what do I need to know about that? Think about that. Hey, Corey, so I know I was raised in Seventh-day Adventist. I was like, I know, that's confusing. It's confusing. How does that apply to me today? Just tell me what I need. You guys tracking with me a little bit? Okay. Here's, here's what I want you to get. Jesus has given us a brilliant, confusing, take you the rest of your life to learn story of himself. And he goes, this is how I want you to get to know me. And we go, it's just too confusing. It's like, no, but don't you love me? Don't you want to know like where I come from and like the things that I'm fulfilling and the things that I'm doing? Like This is actually how I've I could have done it anyway, but I've chosen to reveal myself to you this way. Don't you want to get to, no, Jesus, just give me the five points out of the sermon that I needed to know. I think there's a gentle rebuke in here. And I would say an encouragement at the same time to be like, if you love Jesus, you'll get to know his story. And here's why. Because his story is your story. And you get to know Jesus through the Old Testament and you get to know yourself. 
Here's the other thing I'll say. Some people go, oh my gosh, I'll spend the rest of my life and not understand anything that it's saying. I was like, yes, isn't that amazing? You have endless time to discover depths of Jesus you'll never have experienced if you didn't go there. You tracking with me? Okay, let's, let's keep going. It gets even better. Verse 28. As they approached the village, so he explained from the scriptures everything concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. I, okay, I have, I have a funny thing about that. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. So I love it. It says, like, Jesus... So, uh, like, he, he, was, he, was, he continued on as if he was going farther. So they're getting to where they're, they're getting to Emmaus, and uh, Jesus, like, does that, like, I'm just going to keep walking. It reminds, I was, this is so silly, but I was, like, prepping for this, like, 30 minutes ago, an hour, two hours ago, and I was like, this kind of reminds me of, like, those, like, romance movies where it's, like, the guy just, like, walks away, but he knows, and they're like, but Brian, and he's like, oh, you know, it's like, it, it kind of has that like dramatic feel to it. Uh, and I don't think, here's the thing. I don't think Jesus was actually like trying to like, I know they're going to say something. And then like, I'm, I think Jesus was actually, it's when, when you read this, the, the commentaries, it says that Jesus was probably actually intending to go on. He was planning to go on, but what he was saying was so compelling, was so winsome that they go, you have to stay. And it says they urged him strongly. That phrase in the Greek is like they almost like overcame Jesus. It's like, you're not going, in. you know, it's like they like, like you're not allowed to leave. It's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And here's one of the things, one of the lessons that I think that we can glean at this part of the story. And this is what, it, this is it. I really guys want you to understand this. Next slide. Please. There you go. Okay. Here's the thing. Only those who desire Jesus's company will come to a fuller realization of his identity. I want to say that again. Only those who desire Jesus' company will come to a fuller realization of his identity. I want, to say, I want to say this right now. From my pastoral experience, the primary difference between those who know Jesus and those who know Jesus are those who have a tenacity for his presence. It's the people that desire his company and go, you have to stay here with me. Those are the people that actually come to a fuller realization of, how, of who Jesus really is. You're like, hey, why does Jesus, like, you're the stories that you have about how Jesus is revealing himself to you are, like, insane. I guarantee you, if you trace that back, they seek Jesus in absolutely tenacious ways. Here's, uh, here's, um, yeah, I'll share this story. I had a friend, um, I, I won't leave his name, but I remember this, it was such a passing comment for him. But I was probably an intern here at Redemption at this point. I was maybe early 20s. And I remember my friend, he kind of described his relationship with God and some of the ways that he relates to him. And he, he, he gave me a moment like this where he was like, yeah, I sometimes go through like seasons in my life where like something really difficult is happening. And he goes, I literally will go out somewhere by myself and he goes, and I'll tell God, I am not leaving until you speak to me. Not like, hey, Jesus, if you could, that would be great. But he goes, he goes into, he goes like, I go to the presence of God, and I'll sit out there for hours. And they're like, I'm not leaving, and you're not leaving, and I'm not sleeping until I hear your voice. And that's, that, that right there, I was like, that's what this couple is doing. They're like, hey, Jesus intended to go on, and they're like, you're not leaving 
we want your company. Let me ask, let me ask you this. How bad do you desire the presence of Jesus? One of the things that I think this story shows us is that, I love this, they, 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 they take Jesus, they like don't let him go any further, and then they actually invite him over for a meal. They're like, I think, let me look at those verses again. It was verses uh, 28 through 29. So they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with, with him. And there's something here, <clears throat> and they're going to have a, a meal in a second, where it really invokes this, this picture of showing hospitality to Jesus. So they say, you can't leave. You have to stay. We won't let you go. We want your company. We want you to teach us. We want to hear more. And we want you to have a meal with us. There's something about being hospitable to the presence of Jesus in your, home, in your own life, welcoming him in to the home of your heart. I remember when I read the story, it's like, man, if I were those disciples, it's like I would totally invite Jesus to stay. I would totally have him over. Like, wouldn't that be amazing if I could like have Jesus over and like have him speak to me and have him teach to me? And then I was thinking, I was like, well, metaphorically, we have that opportunity every day. We have that opportunity every day to welcome Jesus into the home of our hearts, have a meal with me, teach me, guide me, talk to me, show me. I had a, um, another friend, and we were just talking a couple of weeks ago, and uh, he used to go to this, I think he was actually going to come tonight, but um, I'll call him after this, where are you at? I was on the phone with him a couple of weeks ago, and he goes, it's funny, in the church I always hear people say, do you have a relationship with Jesus? It's like, do you have a relationship with Jesus? He goes, I like to flip it and ask people, does God have a relationship with you? Because yes, when we say like, oh, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Typically what we hear is like, do you believe? You know, check, check, check. I have a relationship. But he, what he's saying is like, listen, does, does Jesus have a relationship with you? And I'll just ask you, in your life, does Jesus feel invited? Does Jesus feel welcomed? Is Jesus urged to stay with you? Is Jesus, or are you, are you like content with just letting him walk on? I think it's a powerful thing. And here's, here's why I say that. In Revelation, there's this beautiful promise, 320. We just read this last week at church. This is, this is what Jesus says. This is a promise, an invitation for you tonight. Look, I stand at the door and knock. And yes, he's standing at the door of a church and knocking, but I think there is something too, standing to the door of your heart and knocking. Jesus is knocking tonight. If you hear my voice and you open the door, I will come in, and I love this, and we will share a meal together as friends. Isn't that amazing? All right, let's, let's continue on with the story, verses 30 through 32. Guys, it's just going to get better. When he was at the table with them, so now, now they're eating he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. So apparently, Jesus can disappear now. Verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts, I love this, burning within us? While he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Okay, there's a couple details, guys. This passage is loaded with stuff. First thing I want you to notice, notice the couple invited Jesus over to dinner. Jesus was the guest, but Jesus assumed the role as host. Did you catch that? 
Think about like, hey, uh, hey, friend, you know, Kendrick, you want to come over for dinner? Great. Kendrick comes into my house, and then he starts acting like he's the host. They're like, you can have a seat there. I'm going to grab the bread. It's like, that's what's happening here. Like, they invite Jesus over for dinner, and then all of a sudden, he starts assuming the role of his host. He's like, I'm going to bless the food. I'm going to assume the role of the head of the household. There's something about, like, when you welcome Jesus and invite him to, like, like dine with you in, in the scriptures. There's something about handing the responsibility over to him. And like, all right, I'm honoring you. You tell us what's going to happen in this time. Second thing, this is absolutely phenomenal. This is my favorite part of the story. Uh, did you notice that their eyes were opened specifically when Jesus broke and gave the bread? There's a couple stories that this echoes in the scriptures that you're supposed to pick up, which I'm just going to tell you. Here it is. The first thing, this echoes the Lord's Supper. The night before Jesus was crucified, he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples. That's like the, like the face value reading. I was like, okay, I kind of picked up with on that. The second detail is, or I would say the second story that this is echoing, this is echoing the feeding of the 5,000. It's the exact same language as that story. Jesus took the bread, same in that story. He blessed it, same in that story. He broke it in that story, and then he distributed it to his disciples. That's what's happening here. Isn't that amazing? Okay, here's where it gets amazing. All right? I was like, okay, I got it. There's a third story it's echoing. What was the first meal in the Bible? I'm actually going to say it out loud. Can you think? Nobody wants to say, like, Corey might say I'm wrong. All right. Who ate the first food in the Bible? Eve. The first meal in the Bible, think about this. Eve took the fruit, ate it. Her eyes were opened to death. First meal of new creation. They eat, eyes were opened to life. Look at this, uh, look at this quote from N.T. Wright. Think of the first meal in the Bible. The moment is heavy with significance, guys. This is like the pinnacle of the story. The woman took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave it to her husband, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and that they knew that they were naked. The tale was told over and over for the people of Israel and humanity as the beginning of the woes that had come on the human race. Death itself was traced to that moment of rebellion. The whole creation was subjected to decay, futility, and sorrow. And then he says this, Now Luke, echoing that same story, describes the first meal of new creation. He took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes of them both were opened, and they recognized him. The couple at Emmaus, probably Cleopas and Mary, like I said earlier, husband and wife, discover that the long curse has been broken. Death itself has been defeated God's new creation, brimming with life and joy and new possibility, has burst in upon the world of decay and sorrow. Isn't that amazing? Think about this if you were them. They are disillusioned because they're like, remember that phrase? They hoped God would be the one. They take the bread, their eyes are opened, and they're like, he did it. It was absolutely incredible, and this is what they do, and this is where we're going to land the plane. So they're geeked out of their mind. I just think like the most excited you could ever be. They're like, they literally go all the way back to Emmaus. I just want to, I wish I had a stopwatch. I just, I, was like, I wanted to see that seven mile sprint. You know, like they're like booking it back. Uh, look at verse 33. 
It says, when he, when he was at the table with, oh no, that's uh, 30, 33. Then he got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them and they assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke it in the bread. Isn't that a beautiful story? All right, we're going to land the plane here. And here's, how does, this, how, does the, how does this apply to our lives and what does the story teach us? And I want to bring your mind to your own Emmaus Road. I want to bring your mind to your own disillusionment. What does this story teach you when you can't see Jesus? What does this story teach you when you have unmet expectations, when you have dashed hopes? I think this story teaches us three things, that there are three ways to see Jesus. And the first is this, is that you need to see Jesus seeking you. You need to see Jesus seeking you. Here's what I love about this story. They're in the lowest of lows. And Jesus is right in front of them, talking to them, asking them questionings, trying to listen, and they can't see Jesus. And I think there's something profoundly true about our experience with that. You're in your dark place. You're on your Emmaus road. You're going through your own things. And you're like, I can't see Jesus, and he's right in front of you. Like, I can't see him. You're like, you're blaming him. Like, he's out there, and he's, he's there the whole time. He's listening. He's asking you questions. You're praying. He's right there. He's looking at you. Here's the thing. If you just go, like, I'm going to, like, pull myself up. Like, I'm going to seek Jesus. I want, you to, I want you to pause and go this story saying when you're going to seek Jesus, you'll find that he's already seeking you. My prayer for you tonight is that you would first and foremost see Jesus seeking you. I think the second thing that it teaches us is that in RMAS Road, we see Jesus in the scriptures. Um, this is one of those things where it's like, I wish I could come up with something clever. But this is how Jesus revealed himself to them. He revealed himself to them in the scriptures. Here's one thing that I want to say to you young adults. Personal experience devoid of scripture is not enough for your spiritual health. Personal experience, I would say even in prayer, even in corporate worship, in your small group, is if that's devoid of scripture, it is not enough to truly see Jesus. Here's part two of that. Yet scripture devoid of the presence of Jesus isn't enough either. You guys catching what I'm saying there? So your personal experience apart from scripture is not enough for spiritual health, but neither is you engaging in scripture apart from the presence of Jesus. One of the things that I have tried to make a practice of in the last couple of weeks, and I've noticed how often I don't do it, I'm like, all right, time to read the Bible, pick it up, and I just read. And I think this story this week has made me stop and go, have I, you, have I even invited Jesus into this moment to teach me? Here's one of the things, I think oftentimes, I talk to young adults and like, I, don't, I read the Bible and I get nothing. Part of me wonders if we're not seeing Jesus or experiencing Jesus in the scriptures because you're just not asking him to teach you. Maybe something to consider. Abba Poemen. I'm sorry. This is a Christian who lived in 340, 450 AD. Uh, so the reason I say this is because this quote shows that things have not changed over thousands of years of following Jesus. This is what she says. The nature of water is soft. That of stone is hard. But if a bottle... This is, this is a long time ago. But if a bottle is hung above the stone, allowing the water to fall drop by drop, it wears away the stone. So it is with the word of God. It is soft, and our hearts are hard, but the one who hears the word of God often opens the heart to the fear of God. 
if you don't see Jesus in the scriptures, just keep going. Did you notice in the story how long it took Jesus to reveal himself? He didn't do it right away, but it's in the process. He is slow. We are fast. Be patient with the process. Last thing, and this is where we're going to end, we see Jesus in communion. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to confess something honestly to you. We, have, we do something here at this church. Every week we, do, we take this meal uh, that the Lord gave us the night before he was crucified. He gave bread to his disciples and wine. He says, this body was given for you. This blood was spilled. It inaugurates a new covenant. And there's something about, um, there's something incredibly beautiful about having the rhythm of doing communion every week. But one of the things that I've noticed that this story kind of stirred up is when you do something regularly, oftentimes you can miss the weight of it, the beauty of it, the significance of it. And so I want to end tonight. I love this. The disciples of Jesus, they recognize Jesus in the meal. And my prayer for you tonight, my prayer for this community, is that if you've been in a season where you're struggling, where you're not seeing Jesus, is that maybe tonight uh, when we take communion together as a community, that you would actually see Jesus in the breaking of bread. Here's a couple of things that I want you to know about this communion moment. Communion is a meal. It's not just something we take. It's something we receive. Jesus uh, is the one who prepared this meal for you. It's not just like, all right, juice, crack, you know, prayer. Okay, let's go. Like Jesus prepared this meal for you. He prepared the bread. He prepared the wine or the juice. And, he, and it's, it's his hospitality and generosity giving to you. I love that we will share a meal together. This is a moment for you to share a meal with Jesus. Not only that, it's for us as brothers and sisters sitting at the same table different backgrounds, ethnicities, cultures, sin styles, all sitting at the same table sharing a meal with Jesus. So we're going to end tonight, and I have Pastor Elder Dan Moon and myself are going to be over there, and uh, I'm going to pray us out, but we're going to take communion together. And uh, one of the things I want to say is if you are not a follower of Jesus, uh, this, you are invited to this meal, but until you are a follower of Jesus, this meal is not for you. This is for us who have, by our own decision, said that Jesus is Lord of my life. And so there is no judgment. There is zero judgment or condemnation from us to you. I just want you to sit here, maybe pray through this, or maybe you want to follow Jesus, and this could be the first moment where you actually say, I want to follow Jesus, and you can take the meal for the first time. But for the rest of us, uh, we're going to split the room in half. You guys will have to figure it out. But here's what I want you to do. Uh, we're going to give communion to you. And I, this might feel weird, but there's something about using our bodies in a symbolic way. When, I, when you come up to receive communion, I want you to put your hands out like this. And I want you to put your body in a posture of you are receiving something from the Lord. You are receiving the bread, representing his body. You are receiving the blood, representing his, his excuse me, you're receiving the wine, representing his blood that is given for you, cleansed cleanses you of all unrighteousness and then we'll you take it on your own time and there'll be music singing being sung over us while we do that and then we're going to sing one last song to end the series together does that sound good guys jesus loves you i pray that he would recognize 
that he would show you how much he loves you tonight. So Jesus, I just pray over this moment right now. God, I pray that you would cause us to see the beauty of your son. God, would you unveil the veil that often feels like is between us? And God, would you, would people see you tonight in clarity and beauty and kindness and love as a God who has prepared a meal and is generous towards us? So Lord, we are thankful. We love you. And we pray this in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.